Commission. It is now 6 p.m. Um, so I will go ahead and call to order uh, the May 19th meeting of the Historic Resources Commission. Avery or Lynn, do you want to give the preliminary information? Yes, thank you, Chair Meyer. This is Avery Kerner, planning staff, and I have just a few housekeeping items to address for tonight's meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast live on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. During the meeting, please remember to mute yourself when you are not speaking. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please also turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. When you are participating, please keep your video on. We also ask that everyone state their name each time before they speak to ensure that everyone is able to follow along. And with that, I'll turn the meeting back over to the chair. Thank you, this is Chair Meyer again. We're gonna go ahead and do a roll call of um, members this evening. Commissioner Kirby. I see her, there she is. You're muted, Commissioner Irby, I was just taking roll call. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, I had trouble with the link. Uh, Commissioner Irby here. Great, Commissioner Johnson. Commissioner Johnson here. Okay, uh, Commissioner Holly. Commissioner Holly here. Uh, Commissioner Klein. Commissioner Klein here. Okay, and Commissioner Ezell. Commissioner Ezell here. All right, and Commissioner Myers here. So we do have all six members this evening. As just as a reminder, um, we do have one vacant spot on the commission, which, as far as I know, is still vacant. Is that Lynn right? Braddock, Lynn Braddock, Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. The city commission actually approved a new commissioner on Tuesday night. It's Joy Coleman. So she will be at your next meeting. We'll go through and do some training with her, and she should be at next month's meeting. Okay, this is Chair Meyer. That's fantastic. We'll be back to operating on all cylinders here. So, um, okay, we will begin then with uh, the first part of our agenda this evening, communications. Do we have any communications from other commissions, State Historic Preservation Officer, or the general public that is not um, on another agenda item this evening? Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator, you have no communications this evening. Chair Meyer, thank you. Um, is there any disclosure of ex parte communications by any of the members this evening? Okay, I don't see any. Is there any declaration of abstentions for specific agenda items by commissioners this evening? All right, I don't see any. Are there any committee reports this evening? Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. There are no committee reports this evening. All right, this is Chair Meyer. Uh, then we will move on to our consent agenda this evening. We have a number of design review applications uh, for administrative approval that have already been administratively reviewed and approved by staff. Um, are, Lynn, is there any public comment on this, uh, these items? This is Avery Kerner, planning staff. There is no public comment on this item. All right, thank you. Um, is there any commission discussion on the items, the design review applications? 
Okay. Uh, since there appears to be no discussion, I will move that we confirm the attached design review applications according to the standards and information listed in the staff report for each application. Is there a second? Commissioner Johnson, second. This is Chair Meyer. There's been a motion by me and a second by Commissioner Johnson. We'll take a roll call vote on that. Commissioner Irby? Commissioner Irby, aye. Commissioner Johnson? Commissioner Johnson, yes. Commissioner Ezell. Commissioner Ezell, aye. Commissioner Klein. Commissioner Klein, aye. Commissioner Hawley. Commissioner Hawley, aye. And Commissioner Myers, aye. So that motion carries six to zero. Um, we will now move on to the public comment, port, general public comment portion of the evening. Uh, is there, Avery and Lynn, is there any general public comment this evening? This is Avery Kerner, planning staff. There's nobody present in the chambers to provide comment. Um, does anybody via Zoom wish to provide comment? Does not look like any. there's anybody present to provide public comment. Okay, this is Chair Meyer. Uh, seeing how there is no general public comment this evening, we will move on to our public hearing items. Uh, the first item on that portion of the agenda is the attendance memo that we will be receiving um, from Planning and Development Services uh, regarding attendance at the Historic Resources Commission meetings. Uh, no action is required on this item, but I assume, Lynn, perhaps you're presenting something about it. Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. I really don't have a presentation on this. Um, there has been a lack of quorum um, lately three times for the Historic Resources Commission in the past nine months, and that has caused some concern by members of the public and applicants going through the process. So we just wanted to bring that to your attention and highlight how important it is for members of the commission to be at each meeting. Um, members of the public and applicants usually use that Historic Resources Commission schedule that's published at the beginning of the year to kind of gauge what their project timelines are going to be or if they want to make public comment on a specific item. And so it's really important for the commission members to be at every meeting. Of course, there are always instances when something comes up and somebody has to go to the emergency room that's understandable but just trying to be at those meetings if at all possible is really important and I'd be happy to answer any questions about the memo that you may have. This is Chair Meyer. Is there any public comment on this item? This is Avery Kerner planning staff. There is no public comment on this item. Mr. Chair Meyer again, thank you. We'll bring it back to the commission for any discussion. As I stated, there's no action required. Um, I would just say this, that if there's anybody who feels like they don't have the time to be able to commit for a variety of reasons that you just consider moving forward, uh, if you feel like you can continue to attend uh, meetings, I'm not calling anybody out in particular, uh, I'm just stating that, you know, something that we all have to, I think, assess at various times about that, I would agree with Lynn's comments that I think particularly last meeting and a couple others, there there have been some things that are time sensitive according to deadlines people need for tax credits and whatnot. So um, yeah, I would reiterate that it is very important that we all be here, especially particularly when we, there's been times when we have, like for example, we have a vacant member anyway, um, and we just need to be here. So that's all I would say about that. 
if anybody else has any comments, they can chime in. All right, we will move on then. I don't hear any comments. Um, we will then move on to the next item on the public hearing item agenda, which is DR 22-114, 620 Indiana Street. Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. This is 620 Indiana Street for two additions to a contributing property to the Old West Lawrence Historic District. So it is a state law review. It is also a certificate of appropriateness review because the property is located in the environs of the Wilder Clark House located at 643 Indiana Street. Um, just to tell you a little bit about the project, the applicant requests to build two additions. The first addition would provide space for a lift from the ground floor to the second floor bedroom. It would be five feet, 10 inches by five feet, three inches. It would be sheathed with lap siding to match the historic structure and would have an asphalt shingle roof. It would be set back three feet, 10 inches from the front wall plane. The second addition would be located on the north elevation of the structure. It would replace the existing sunroom elevation. It would be 12 feet, 10 inches by approximately 44 feet. It would be one story in height. The addition would have cement board lap siding with a lap width to match the historic structure and vinyl windows are proposed. On your screen, you see the um, subject property highlighted in green. Okay. And then this, the red shows the Old West Lawrence Historic District, the little dots um, that show up on the map are contributing structures if they're green and non-contributing if they're red. And then the Wilder Clark House is in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen. This is the subject property, the primary elevation that faces Indiana Street. And um, this is looking at that south elevation. There are no changes proposed to this elevation. This shows the um, garage on the north side, the new uh, master suite addition would wrap around this portion of the structure. This shows you that sunroom addition that will be removed and where the new addition will be from the front of that existing sunroom back to the garage. And on the right of this photo, you see the two windows that would be affected by the lift addition. This is the site plan showing if you look um, at the site plan in the center of the screen, there's a little lift identification roof mark. And then there's the master suite addition that runs along the north side of the building. This is showing the demolition floor plan. You can see a little bit better in this where the sunroom addition is and will be removed. And this is showing the proposed floor plan on the left-hand side of the screen. You see the um, lift addition that sticks out past the existing elevation and then the new master suite addition that's on the top of the screen. Um, this is showing the primary elevation. It's a little hard to see. Go to the next one. This is the proposed lift addition. This is the north elevation. Okay. And these, um, the red circles show the two new proposed additions. 
And then this is that rear or east elevation where you will see um, a little bit of that master suite addition that's shown on the bottom right hand corner of the screen. So staff has talked to the architect a little bit. He's been very um, vigilant trying to find a way to make the lift addition meet the standards. And there have been several iterations of trying to find a place where it will not be damaging to the historic structure. Um, staff is hopeful that there may be a few alternatives that have not been um, explored and that maybe taking this to the architectural review committee would help to determine if there are design alternatives for the lift addition. Um, the master suite addition is on that north side and really replaces the existing sunroom addition so it doesn't encroach anymore onto the um, primary historic structure. So staff is recommending that this be referred to the architectural review committee to determine if there are design alternatives to the location of the lift addition that will meet the overall goal of the applicant while better meeting the applicable standards and guidelines. And I was remiss, this is state law review standards 9 and 10 of the Secretary of the Interior Standards, and then for the Certificate of Appropriateness, it's Standard 9, and then the Illustrative Review Criteria in Chapter 22. And I'd be happy to stand for any questions that you may have. This is Chair Meyer again. I know the applicants are present. Do they, is there anything they wish to say at this time? Good evening, Lance Adams, Adams Architects. Um, yeah, I would like to uh, just state that we have explored multiple locations for placing lift. Uh, initially, we started in the structure, uh, and that did not seem to be uh, um, a good way to approach historically the house, how much damage would occur to the existing structure. Uh, so then we explored outside. Uh, the location that was selected um, takes advantage of two openings that are in line that we can use for openings into the, uh, the left shaft. Um, and that's why that area was selected. It also is a direct path from uh, the living room to the uh, dressing room that is off of the main suite um, that the homeowner should be using currently. Um, so that uh, was the reason that area was picked um, on the location. Um, and I think if you go back and look at the front uh, elevations of the photographs that were provided, uh, there are multiple trees along that side as well. So um, even as, as Lynn pointed out that uh, it was hard to see the lift addition on the elevations, I think we've done a nice job of living with it. It is small enough to where it's not going to be um, a big uh, albatross um, on the front of the building. Um, I, I think it uh, is highly necessary uh, for the homeowners to, to have this lift. Uh, they've lived in this house now for 37 years, and they've come to me to help them age in place. And this is our phase one of aging in place for them. Uh, and that's what's driving the, uh, the direction uh, we've looked at other locations on the exterior of the building, being able to attach 
to the original building so they can get to the second story, which has the bedrooms. And uh, the one location that was discussed that may be a potential was on the south uh, east corner of the structure. Uh, that would take out the large uh, window into their dining room and would, would take out most of the daylight in, into that space. Um, it also would then uh, involve an entire bedroom on the second floor, which then leads to a narrow hallway that is a little bit less than three feet wide as it is now, um, past the stair railing into the main suite then from there. So there's a lot of gymnastics that would have to go through um, for that um, every day for the homeowners, um, for that to uh, work out for them. So once again, I, I believe that the best location for the left is where we proposed it. Um, for the least amount of structural damage to the building, uh, we are proposing to take the two windows that we are changing in the doorways and uh, relocating those exact windows and trim to the outside of the elevator shaft so they will be in their same position. It's five feet beyond the original wall. So if there's any questions on it, um, I'd be happy to answer those. Thank you. Chair Meyer again, thank you. Um, is there any public comment on this item? This is Avery Kerner, planning staff. I don't see anybody raising their hand to provide public comment, um, but I do believe the property owner may have been trying to provide comment um, beforehand, but was muted. So if they'd like to provide comment, this would be a good opportunity. You're, you're not... Um... You are not obligated to do so, but you can if you would like. You're, I think you're muted though. Okay, I'm Tim Miller. My wife and I, Tamara Dutton, are co-owners of the structure. And as Lance said, we've lived here for 37 years and we'd like to continue to live here, but uh, Tamara's had some medical problems recently and we can see that this is not going to be feasible. This is an old house built in times when there really weren't accommodations for disabilities and we'd like to stay here as long as we can. Uh, we've worked with Lance and his partners and they have, I think, come up with the best possible plan that preserves the house, which we're very fond of. And we we do value our neighborhood and we want to preserve uh, the, you know, the historic values of Old West Lawrence. But we think what we're promoting is the best thing that does preserve those values and also lets us live here for as long as we can. And we hope it's many more years. Jeremiah again, thank you. Uh, okay, we will bring it back to the commission then for discussion. Um, uh, I guess this is a question for Lance. Um, were you, you and the owners amenable about going to the Architectural Review Committee? Uh, yes, we'd, we'd be more than happy to meet with the Architectural Review Committee. Um, you know, design is never done um, in a bottle. It needs to have everyone's input. So I'd be more than open to additional input on 
Boy, this may work for everyone. Mr. Meyer again, I guess my my preference would probably be to send this to the architectural review committee and see what is there and bring it back next meeting or as soon as possible and review it at that time. Any other thoughts? I, this is Tamara Dutton. I would like to say that if we put the elevator where the new proposal would put it, it would destroy a, a huge part of our house. It would really not work there. Windows in particular, and we bought this house for windows. That's so. true, and Thank you. I, I, I'm not suggesting that it anything would change if it went to the architectural review committee. It may be that it gets looked at and everybody says, you know, yeah, you know, it doesn't work or, you know, somebody suggests something that's not feasible to you and it comes back here anyway. Uh, that, that's my take on it. Other commissioners, especially ARC members might have a different perspective on it and can certainly tell me otherwise. Well, this is Commissioner Johnson. I just wanted to ask about um, the vinyl windows. I was trying to figure out which which ones or what. It, I'm. I think I kept missing that part of the report. Was it? It just talked about vinyl windows, but I didn't know where and what. So that's my question. Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. Um, Lance can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the vinyl windows were proposed for the master bedroom suite. Lynn, that is correct. And uh, the reason we're proposing those are 90% of the windows in the house have already been uh, replaced with vinyl windows. Um, and that's evident in my, the photos that I sent in with the package of the windows that closed. Um, the two unique windows on the front of the house that are, that are round are still the original wood ones. Um, and there's some other oval windows that are original wood. But uh, the rest of the windows have been replaced with vinyl. Um, at, at that point, then we didn't see it necessary to come back in with a wood window because we wouldn't be matching what is currently there. Well, and even the the two windows that are on the the lift shaft, those are vinyl as well. Correct. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Uh, this Commissioner Holly, um, Lance, just a couple of questions, and I, I do think it would be good to send this to the uh, ARC. But I was not clear from the drawings with the the relocated windows on the outside of the shaft. Is, is the back of the elevator model, I don't know what all options are available. Are those functional windows or are they, like, does that still allow to the applicant's desire to have light into their house? Are they still getting light through? You know, is it a clear door and a clear window or is it a, a fake window, for a lack of a better word, that's going to be translucent? Sure. Uh, actually, the it's a, it's a left, and there is a uh, a power modular that would sit to the west of the structure, so towards the street, and then the rest of it is just a flat 
platform that they would be on. So yes, the windows are visible uh, while using the lift. And then if we decide to use a glass door at the location, yes, it allows light all the way back into the floor. So the lift itself does not block the window. Does that help, Jay? Uh, it, it does. And one other item, and again, this could be, I think, talked more in depth at the, the ARC, but could you briefly summarize the structural issue for preventing this, say, being relocated in the same general spot, but inboard? That, that would be useful, not for final answer, but just it, it, it appears from the drawings that there's a basement, whereas there might be room for the, the clearance at the hit, as it were, but I, I don't know. Right, so uh, the, uh, the lift requires only about six inches of a pit on it, uh, so not much of a pit at all. Um, but uh, like most old houses, this has a rock foundation, so that actually sits inboard quite a bit from the exterior wall, uh, which pushes the, uh, the uh, lift shaft inward more. And so then we're, we're close to six foot by six foot space going all the way up through the structure, which if we looked at the, uh, at the floor plans of the living room, and of the dressing room uh, that pretty much takes most of those spaces out. Um, so then structurally, then we're, we're going through all the, you know, original hardwood floors and all the structure and all that inside. So for the house itself, I, I believe it's better to locate this on the outside so that we aren't doing all that structural work to the inside and trying to support things and cut them away from their original location. Is that a helpful? Yeah, yeah, it is. The uh, as an owner of an old house with a rock foundation, I can understand it's it's not as simple as just sliding that box in. <laughs> the the impact of outboard versus inboard would take up a significantly greater chunk of space without removing the existing foundation, which would probably compromise the house. That that, that is helpful. <laughs> Well, this is Chair Meyer again. I, um, is, it, is, it, is there an agreement that we should send it to the ARC just to see what can happen? Or is anybody not in favor of that? Mr. Irby, uh, I am in favor of that. Uh, this is Chair Meyer again. I did have one question. You were talking about the windows that are on there. Were those replacement windows that had been replaced with vinyl in the past, or they'd just been on there so long they were vinyl? What, I guess I guess I'm curious as to know a little bit more about that. Yeah. Sure. At yeah. one point in the history of the home, uh, the windows were replaced with replacement vinyl windows. So the sashes of the windows are vinyl and the runners are vinyl, but all the original trim is intact. The internal trim and the external trim of the windows is still there. It's just the sashes themselves and, and the main 
working part of the window have all been replaced. So they're no longer the original wood windows. Okay, so they haven't been, I mean, windows haven't been replaced in the last 10 or 15 years with vinyl. And I mean, that that those replacements were a long time ago. Is that what you're saying? My understanding, yes. They've been in there a long time. Um, and I'm not sure. I know that the uh, the HRC has a uh, a record on the house for their two other the addition in the garage. I believe have been to the HRC and ARC in the past, um, early 2000s and late 90s. As well. So okay. that information may be in those folders as well. All right. Could I just say one more thing? Okay. Yes, sorry. Okay. I was on myself. Let's go ahead. Um, okay, Tim Miller. Um, I would just like to, you know, I'm I'm not opposed at all to having more review done on it. I want this to be something that works well for the neighborhood. Um, I guess our biggest concern is we would we're getting older, you know, you get into your late 70s, you kind of think you don't have all the time in the world for this. And it's a question I think to us of just how long does this take and how soon could we'd like to get it done with this building season if we could. This is Chair Meyer again, and I certainly appreciate that. I can I can tell you that my father turns 80 next month, and we're dealing with a mobility issue in that in the last year he's lost his ability to walk unassisted and uh, lives in a two-story house with only a curving <laughs> staircase. Uh -huh. Stairs, uh, watching him do that is, uh, I about have a heart attack. And <laughs> anytime he gets up or down. So I 100% I uh, appreciate the need for that. Um, I would just say that if we can get into the ARC and have it back next month, I would kind of like to do that only because of the fact that uh, it, for me, uh, considering it's a contributing structure to a very important historic district in Lawrence, I, I would just prefer to have a little more analysis um, done when we come back. I mean, that that's, that's where I'm at. I don't know about other commissioners, but I certainly would hope we could not drag it out and move things along. So. Okay, well, we're, we're fine with that for sure. And I say that, I, this is Chair Meyer, and I say that as a person who's not actually on the ARC committee and doesn't know the schedule. So let me give that as a caveat. Um, this is Chair Meyer. I, I don't, I'm not hearing anybody else saying anything. And so um, I guess I would make a motion um, that we send the project, uh, refer it to the Architectural Review Committee uh, to determine if there are any design alternatives to the location of the lift edition. Lynn, do we have to do a separate motion for the state law review certificate of appropriateness, or can I just do a motion that just sends it there entirely? Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator, you can just do one motion that sends it there. Great. This is Chair Meyer again. Thank you. Um, I will just move that we uh, refer the project to the Architectural Review Committee to determine if there are design alternatives to the location of the lift edition that will meet the overall goal of the applicant while better meeting the 
applicable standards and guidelines. And I would also state that uh, maybe there could also be some conversation about the windows at that time uh, as well. So is there a second? Commissioner Klein seconds. Okay, this is Chair Meyer. Uh, I made a motion and Commissioner Klein made a second. So we'll take a roll call vote. Commissioner Irby. Commissioner Irby, aye. Commissioner Johnson. Commissioner Johnson, yes. Commissioner Ezell. Commissioner Ezell, aye. Commissioner Klein. Commissioner Klein, aye. Commissioner Hawley. Commissioner Hawley, aye. And Commissioner Myers, an aye. So that motion carries six to zero. Lynn, do you want to explain how that works? Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. We'll try. Um, there's a standing ARC meeting for projects the first Thursday of the month. So we'll try to get this on that agenda and hopefully have it back to you for your June meeting. Um, if we can get everyone scheduled to work and we can get design options, if there are any um, available to put in the packet in time for the June meeting. Mr. Chairmeyer again, thank you. Are there any questions by the applicant or Mr. Adams? Okay. No. Well, good luck with that and hopefully we can wind it up. <laughs> okay, thank Great. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Very much. thank you. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Mr. Meyer, and uh, our next on the agenda is state preservation law review training. Lynn Braddock Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. Um, every year we do uh, preservation law training conducted by the State Historic Preservation Office to keep us brushed up on using our standards and guidelines. This evening we have Katrina Ringler with us and she's gonna lead us in a little bit of state law review training. Thank you, Lynn. This is Katrina Ringler. I'm with the State Historic Preservation Office. Um, I'm here in Topeka. Um, I have a couple of different roles here at the State Preservation Office. I oversee the staff, um, but I also am the state coordinator for the Certified Local Governments Program, which Lawrence, of course, is one of our 18 CLGs in the state of Kansas. Um, if I can, I am going to attempt to share my screen here. Looks like it's working. And I'm going to go through um, a presentation. Um, apologies if any of you have seen some of these slides before, if you've been through a training of mine, but um, the standards haven't changed in a long time, so there's not a big reason to change some of these slides. Uh, starting off, I just want to kind of give a little overview of, you know, a couple of quotes that may you may have some, some feelings about. Um, you know, if you survive long enough, you're revered, rather like an old building, right? Um, but we are the only country in the world that trashes its old buildings. Too late, we realize how much we need them, said Jackie Kennedy at one point. And then, of course, what I think we're probably going to get to today is that um, the devil is in the details. And as you guys just saw through your previous review, sometimes those details are very important. Um, and you need to consider them um, in more, in more, um, you know, take a little bit more time to review them. So as a refresher, the CLG program or Certified Local Government program 
um, is part of the National Historic Preservation Act, which was something that came along in the 60s. Uh, that program or that, that act created the National Register um, and also created the State Historic Preservation Offices, which is my office here in um, Topeka. Um, the CLG program is really just a partnership between local governments, the state preservation office in the middle, and the National Park Service at the federal level. Um, we all have a little bit of a different role in that program. Um, basically, I'm in the middle to facilitate bringing money from the feds and guidance from the federal um, authority down to you guys at the local level, making sure you have the resources you need. And then I facilitate bringing information back from you guys to the feds um, with through annual reporting and, and survey information so that they know what really is happening on the ground as far as preservation work um, in, the, in the country. Um, in the state of Kansas in the 1970s, we have a similar act called the Kansas Preservation Act. Um, this was legislation that declared historic preservation is the policy of the state and required that activities that involve governmental entities would be reviewed um, when they Im involve a project on a historic, uh, de historically designated site or, or building. Um, in the 80s, lawmakers widened the law and required review of all projects within the environs. But then in 2013, lawmakers reversed that part of the state law. And so we no longer do environs review at the state level. Um, but of course, some of you guys, uh, some of the CLGs have that environs provision at the local level. So a couple of things about the State Preservation Act. Um, one provision of that is a statute um, that we lovingly refer to as the State Preservation Law. Uh, 75-2724, that is the part that actually requires the SHPO to be given the opportunity to comment on proposed projects. Um, and then there are further regulations that describe how we implement that program, what triggers review and the process for, for reviews and appeals. Not that you have to read all the fine print, but there is a provision of that statute that says that the state preservation officer can enter into an agreement with a city or a county to basically take on the review authority that we have under that statute. And of the 18 CLGs in Kansas right now, about half of them have an agreement like that with us, including you guys in the city of Lawrence. Um, we, of course, always hold the, um, the ultimate authority to, you know, take back that, that agreement, um, but also we are here in case there are ever projects that may be coming before you or the staff um, that for some reason or other you guys can't take on. Maybe there is a lack of staff situation, like a temporary um, position vacancy um, maybe there is something like a pandemic that gives you guys pause and makes you guys not be able to review projects for a while, or there could be a project that's just so complicated and needs certain um, experience or expertise. And in any of those kind of situations, even though you have an agreement with us, you can always um, choose to turn a project back to us for review um, if you're not able to um, accommodate that. 
So just a reminder that the state preservation law, um, you guys probably see a lot of reviews under that, but you also have review under your local ordinance, which of course was part of what you just reviewed the last project on your agenda. Um, a certificate of approval or a certificate of appropriateness, we call a COA, is uh, what we refer to when you're doing a design review um, of a property under your local preservation ordinance. That's an ordinance that's been adopted by the lo local municipality. Um, and it is specifically calling out you all as the preservation commission, how many members you have, what your meeting schedules are, um, how many um, different professions and things are made up in the membership of the commission. Um, but it calls out how to designate local landmark buildings, different communities call them different things, but whatever your local register of historic places is called is how your local ordinance um, defines it. Um, and as I said, sometimes you do have local environs review. Um, believe it or not, there are CLGs in the state who don't do design review at all. They only list properties to their local register and they do outreach and education and other things that CLGs are tasked with. Um, so you can adopt a, a design review um, provision in your local ordinance. And along with that, you can adopt a local um, design guidelines specific to a property or a district to help you with the design review um, process. But to be a certified local government, uh, your design review process has to be based on the Secretary of the Interior standards, um, which I obviously heard in the last um, uh, review. Um, Lynn pointed out which standards were applicable and, and you guys discussed those when you were discussing the project. So at the state law level, we are then under a state statute and it's only for buildings that are listed in the national or the state register. That's what um, triggers the review along with a government action by the state or the local government. We use the, the Secretary of the Interior standards for the treatment of historic properties, but usually the rehabilitation portion of those standards. Um, we can also use local design guidelines as long as they abide by the standards and as long as the local government calls those out to us when they submit a review to us. Let me make sure I'm not missing anything. Um, so it is very important as you go through, and maybe this is on the next slide, let me transfer that. It's very important that you know, and I think the staff reports are extremely valuable in that, um, that when you're doing a design review, you know under what law you are reviewing the project because there are some differences between what gets reviewed at the local level versus the state law level. Um, for example, COAs are often triggered by a permit, but not always. Um, your local ordinance may say something like all projects, or it may define certain kinds of projects that get reviewed under the COA. Um, some other CLGs, I have kind of called them out on that a little bit because as a property owner, 
I may not know that my property is listed in the local register. Um, I may not know that I have to get a COA unless I also come in to get a permit. So if that is a situation with your local ordinance, there may be a need to have continuing education with property owners um, to make sure that they're aware that a COA is required um, in a certain um, historic district or certain listed properties. And especially with you all having an environs component that may be critical as well. Um, most COA local ordinance reviews have a, have a um, limit of approve, approve with conditions or deny. Um, there's not things like, um, you know, you can approve it, but, um, or, or I guess you can't table it or things like that. So make sure that you are using the appropriate language when you make motions, um, that you're not just saying, oh, I approve this. Make sure you're exact, actually saying what you're approving and why. And especially if you're denying it, what, why you're denying it based on what standard. Um, and again, this, the staff reports are incredibly helpful with that. I noticed today when you guys made the motion, um, you know, you just read it right from the um, staff recommendation. And of course, that can be adjusted if the, the commission needs to do that. Um, your local review also has an appeal component to it. It should define in the ordinance how a property owner or someone, um, you know, with interest in the project would go about appealing the decision of the commission. Um, most of those go back to the local governing body or maybe to another body of the, of the city government. Um, some local laws allow you to take into consideration financial impact on property owners. Those are usually called a certificate of economic hardship. Uh, not all local ordinances have those, but that is something that as a CLG you can have. Now, the certified or the um, Kansas state law is triggered by an action of the state or any subdivision of the state. So that is why local permits trigger a review, but also some other things that we're going to talk about later, like zoning um, and actions by the government, including projects that are undertaken by the city government. The um, a common misconception is that the state law does not include the interiors of buildings, um, but they do. And it's all about that trigger. So if a permit is required for an interior remodel, um, an electrical permit, a, a plumbing permit, something like that, and that's on the interior of the building, then you're going to have to review the interior um, of the building as well. Um, the SHPO or the Historic Preservation Commission, whoever's doing the state law review has to review the project to determine. And the language we use is if it will damage or destroy the listed property. So when a motion is made under the state preservation law, the language should really be, you know, I move that this project will or will not damage or destroy the historic property. Um, and so if you're saying it will damage or destroy the historic property, you always want to make sure that you are citing maybe the standard that you think it's not meeting. Um, under the state law, the appeals go to the local governing body. So in Lawrence, they would go to the city council. And that is their role to determine if there is any feasible and prudent alternative to the, the proposal. 
So for example, if you all had chosen tonight to deny or find that that project did not um, meet the standards, that it would damage or destroy the historic property, then the property owner would have the um, ability to appeal to the city council and make a plea to them that there's no other feasible way for them to do what they want to do with their property to meet their goals and objectives. And if the city agrees with that and takes into consideration all the other factors, then they can still issue the permit. So a couple of things, um, you guys may be aware of this, but this is just sort of a, a rundown of how the um, order of events might happen when it comes to a state law review. Um, really step zero should be something like a conversation with the city staff, um, the, pro the project proponent, the property owner or their architect um, should probably come and talk to somebody at the city about you know, life safety, ADA, zoning, code regulations, um, and then the historic district guidelines would be part of that conversation. But the property owner or design professional maybe contacts the city to get a permit. And of course that triggers the state law review. So the project's flagged. And then the planning staff determine if it's a minor or a major review. So when you guys are doing your consent agendas, um, I think most of that are minor reviews that staff have done. And that's because part of our agreement with the city is that um, we allow minor reviews to be done by staff, as long as they have a list that we've approved of the types of reviews that we, they consider to be minor. Major reviews always have to go to the Preservation Commission, um, things like demolitions, new construction, major additions, um, those kind of things. So minor reviews are conducted administratively and then major reviews go to the Landmarks Commission or the Preservation Commission. And if they are denied by the commission, they appeal to the city council, as we said. Um, at the end of the day, if someone is aggrieved by the actions of the city council, they can sue in district court. That's very rare. So projects that are undertaken directly by a governmental entity or projects undertaken by a person but supported by a governmental entity is what triggers the state law review, and it may trigger the review also under local ordinance, just depending on what your ordinance says. Projects for which the governmental entity issues a lease, a permit, a license, a certificate, um, those also trigger a review under state law. They're much more rare because they also have to involve an actual listed property, and that's not usually the case. But just for some examples to think about um, that you may see come before you would be like utilities and streetscape projects um, that the city is undertaking itself. So if they were doing cut curbs and sidewalks in a historic district, um, also, things like rezoning technically are supposed to be reviewed under state law. Um, depending on how major they are, they might be reviewed administratively. Um, but major rezoning projects could impact historic properties. Um, things like parking regulations or requirements, things like that could impact historic properties. Um, then there are things that require permits and whether or not something requires a permit in your community um, is all about what you know the local regulations say. So what requires a permit in Lawrence may not require a permit in Topeka or Leavenworth or Kansas City or Dodge City. 
So I don't know, but maybe painting would require a permit in some communities, probably not in most. Replacing windows may require a permit, but surprisingly in a lot of communities, it does not. Um, we, we tend to get calls from property owners sometimes in historic districts that are very upset because they're their neighbors replacing windows. And we, unfortunately we have to inform them that if it doesn't require a permit, then it doesn't trigger state law. Um, now they may still have to get it reviewed under a COA depending on what their local ordinance says. So it just depends. Other things like interior remodels. Um, I have a conversation with our staff person at the city of Topeka um, because Topeka does not require a permit for interior remodeling unless there is a structural wall being impacted. And I asked the staff person, I said, well, me as a property owner who's a complete lay person and doesn't know anything about structural stuff, how do I know a wall is structural until I start knocking it down? And he admitted that that was probably a short-sighted part of their permit process. But um, it just brings up the fact that like, if I had a downtown commercial building or if even I have my house, I can do a lot of interior remodeling before a permit would be um, triggered for review. And then of course, signage. Most communities have a permit for commercial signage of some kind. Um, and those should be reviewed under the state law and possibly under your local ordinance as well. Whenever a review is triggered for a um, state law review, um, we do expect that the entire project would be part of the review. So even though the, um, the trigger may be the window replacement or the sign, um, if the sign indicates that they are getting a new business in that building and there's going to be a remodel, then probably the entire project should be part of the review. And it may take a little bit more work or they may be trying to kind of divide things out. Um, I know that doesn't always happen, but that is the anticipation that we expect and hope for. So our roles in the process of review, of course, the SHPO, um, your local staff, if they're doing administrative review, or you all as the Landmarks Commission, is to review the case and apply the Secretary of the Interior standards. Does the proposal meet the standards and does it damage or destroy the historic listed property? Basically, you're using the standards in order to determine if there is a damage or destroy um, component. Um, what we cannot do is look at the financial feasibility of the project. Um, whether or not it's good for the community. Can the building be saved? Would the building be usable? Um, so for example, tonight we were reviewing that project um, before us and there was a very compelling reason why the property owners wanted the new construction. And we may all be very sympathetic and we may agree with them on that, but unfortunately that's not part of our role in the process. When it comes time, if it comes time, for a project to be appealed to the city council, then they are um, tasked with finding if there are feasible and prudent alternatives to the proposal. Um, can it be done differently? Does it have to be done that way at all? 
Has planning been done to minimize harm to the, pro, the pro historic building? Um, so, you know, they can look at, is this good for the community? Is this good for the applicant? Are there financial feasibility issues that might need to be taken into consideration? And so then um, I just want to talk about the standards tonight. I think you guys have a pretty good handle on them, but it never hurts to get a refresher. Earlier, I mentioned that we use the Secretary of Interior standards for the treatment of historic properties, which is a mouthful. But <laughs> what it really boils down to is that there are four standards um, that we use um, widely but really the one we use day to day for all of the programs that I review in my office, the tax credits, grant programs, the state preservation law is the standards for rehabilitation. Um, preservation is basically when you are taking a property and you're trying to just preserve it as it sits where you found it. You're not trying to repair it. You're just trying to keep it the way it is for the long haul. Um, this might be something that a historic museum or a historic site would do to just, you know, preserve it the way it is and show people how they found it. Um, restoration is more where you are taking a, a property back in time. You're removing anything that is not from the time period you're trying to convey. Um, so again, this is mostly used by historic sites and museums because they're trying to portray and um, interpret the site for a specific purpose. So if it's, um, you know, the goal is to interpret this building when a U.S. president lived here, then you're probably, you're going to need to get rid of all the stuff that's not from that era. Um, and so you're doing a restoration. It's kind of tough to live in a building that is a restoration or a preservation project because it doesn't allow you to have modern conveniences or to adapt it to another use. Um, the other fourth um, standard that sometimes comes into play is reconstruction. So if a building is substantially damaged or destroyed, and if there is sufficient documentation um, it can be reconstructed just the way it was before the, the demolition or the destruction. Um, you can kind of see that here where this building, I think, was damaged in World War II, and it was reconstructed in the areas that you can see a little bit of a color change there. So what we typically work with is rehabilitation, where you're, you're bringing in aspects of those other standards to preserve the historic character of the building, restore things that may be missing, um, reconstruct things if they um, are no longer extant, but really what you're doing is making the building usable for the future. Um, so you're adding an addition, you are upgrading electrical and plumbing, you are addressing ADA compliance and other code compliance issues, things that make the building usable. And whenever we start um, to review a project under the Secretary of the Interior Standards, we always first want to start with figuring out what are the character-defining features of the building. Um, and most of my examples tonight are going to be commercial examples, just to kind of keep it in one, one stream. Um, but of course, this applies to all other properties as well. Um, the Secretary of the Interior Standards is meant to apply 
to every type of property listed on the National Register, which includes trains, parks, boats, bridges, um, all kinds of things. So it's not just buildings, but those are tend to be the easiest ones for us to talk about. So when you're looking at character defining features and integrity um, in terms of the state preservation law and or your local preservation law, you're looking at features and finishes and materials. Um, and it could be on the inside as well. We're gonna look mostly at the outsides of these projects, but it applies to the interior. And so if you look at the one on the left, you can see um, there, there are more character defining features. There's brickwork, there's window shape, size materials, there's a storefront, um, there is that corner tower with a hipped roof um, with a little even roof um, ornament at the top. Um, the building at the right has a kind of a lack of character, right? It has been changed to the point where it doesn't really have anything distinctive or character defining about it. Um, but, you know, if it's in a historic district and it needs a sign permit, then one of the things you all will look at is to see, well, does that sign impact that historic building? Is it going to change the character of that building? Um, but also, will it change any of the um, character of the surrounding district? There are 10 Secretary of the Interior standards. Um, we always kind of joke that it's like the 10 commandments or the 10 bills, Bill of Rights, um, but they are pretty vague because they have to apply to all these different proper, uh, properties. Um, and so it does take a little bit of interpretation sometime to, to, to figure out what they mean. So standard number one is um, that a property should be used for its historic purpose or placed in a new use that requires minimal change. And so if the new use will require infilling large glass storefront windows, um, then maybe that's not a compatible use for that building. Uh, a new use should be found or maybe a new building should be found for the use. Um, I always use as an example, putting a parking garage in a Victorian house. That's, that's not gonna be something that would be appropriate for that property, but you could probably put a parking garage in a concrete warehouse. So it just is a matter of fitting the use with the building and making sure that it's compatible. Um, if the building does not accommodate the new use, then it doesn't meet standard number one. So this is just an example of a building um, where the, the, the use of the building as a bar um, and restaurant establishment, um, I believe it was like local code or something said, if you were serving alcohol, you couldn't have open windows to the sidewalk. Um, and this building has a beautiful, original, um, intact uh, storefront. And so they didn't want to infill the glass. And so they got very creative with vinyl window stickers to separate the activities on the inside from the street and that complied with their code. Um, a local code official called me about this building a few years ago and they actually had a fire marshal um, who wanted the swing of the doors reversed because I think they were swinging in. Um, and that was no problem. We could just, you know, reverse the swing of the doors and it was able to be accomplished that way. Now, in some communities that may not meet the sign code for um, having those vinyl stickers like that, 
that could complicate your review, that could complicate the design um, alternatives, but in this case, it worked. Standard numbers two says that historic character of a property needs to be retained and preserved. Removing historic materials or altering the features and spaces that characterize a property should be avoided. So again, we have to know what the character defining features are before we can really determine if the project is going to damage or destroy those historic um, features. But you can see in this example, this is a building in Hiawatha that was actually covered with a metal um, slip cover at one point. And of course, when they put that on, there were pieces sticking up above the top and they just cut those off. But you'll get to see a restoration picture for that later. I underlined features and spaces um, on the left because um, the spaces on the interior of the building can be extremely important as well. And those are character defining features. So corridors, big open spaces, retail spaces, um, theaters, auditoriums, gymnasiums, all of those kind of big open spaces, churches with sacred um, congregational spaces are important as well. So if the new use is requiring chopping those up, filling them in, cutting them um, in, into pieces, that may be also be something that would damage or destroy the historic property. Standard number three says that properties should be recognized as a physical record of their time, place, and use. And so changes that create a false his sense of history, uh, such as adding conjectural features or architectural elements from other buildings should, be, should not be undertaken. Um, this is just an example of what we kind of call lovingly as Bucker Revival, um, where there are perfectly good intact downtown early 20th century commercial properties where someone has, you know, thought, okay, well, we're going to make them more old timey by adding these um, shake awnings. Um, you see that also sometimes with um, other buildings that are being made more fancy than they ever were historically. So adding features to make a building look more fancy or old timey is creating a false sense of what that building truly was historically. Um, we want to preserve and highlight the authentic um, features and finishes and materials and highlight those um, because obviously a lot of buildings that have historic significance aren't going to be extremely fancy. They might be simple and plain. Um, and so we need to look for opportunities to enhance that if we can. Also, um, keeping in mind that not all historic buildings are created equal. You know, some of them are from the 1800s and early 1900s. Obviously, Lawrence, you guys have a wealth of um, mid-19th century uh, resources, but there are also 20th century resources and getting into the late 20th century at this point. Um, 50 years is 1972 now, uh, believe it or not. So buildings from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and now the 70s um, are also historic. And what was appropriate for sort of a typical, you know, downtown commercial building in the early 20th century with maybe a striped canvas awning or cast iron columns on the storefront, 
those are not going to be appropriate for these kind of buildings because these have a completely different architectural style, um, form, function, all kinds of things. So um, a wood shake awning on this kind of building is definitely not appropriate. Standard four says properties um, change over time, of course. Changes that have acquired historic significance in their own right should be retained and preserved. And this is where we get into some of the other aspects of mid-century, uh, mid-20th century um, changes that sometimes people are finding a little bit hard to deal with. Uh, the Pegues department store in downtown Hutchinson um, was actually built in the 19 teens. It had a very ornate sort of Beaux-Arts facade on it when it was uh, built a mason out of masonry and terracotta. Um, but in the 1950s, the department store was completely remodeled on the inside and the outside. Um, all of that terracotta was literally scraped off. The windows were infilled. And this metal panel facade was put on with a giant opening in the middle for the window. Um, and the interior of the building was also completely renovated with terrazzo and chrome and pink and teal tile. Um, and so that has become the authentic historic character of this building. Even though we have the historic photos of what it looked like in the 19 teens, we would never want a developer to go back to that because this is the authentic 1950s building now. Um, it was actually this way longer than it ever was the previous way. Um, so when it was recently renovated for apartments, um, we took a lot of care in our tax credit review to make sure that they kept the character of that property in the 1950s. Um, for example, at one time, at one point, they were proposing new doors for the apartments and they had sort of a craftsman-y look to them. And we said, nope, slab doors, 1950s, right? Not not a panel door. Other examples in downtowns, um, we recently listed downtown Great Bend as a historic district, and we found that some of their metal slipcovers um, were installed in the late 60s and early 70s, and so some of those have to be weighed, you know, can, can the original facade underneath those be restored, or is the metal facade now historic and should be really retained. And it's really a case-by-case -case basis because not all of those buildings retain authentic character behind the metal slipcovers. Some of them, the metal slipcovers are really important um, to sort of the story of downtown um, Great Bend, so. Standard number five is talking specifically about those distinctive features, finishes, and construction techniques um, or examples of craftsmanship that characterize properties. And those just need to be recognized and preserved. Um, if you're not aware of, this, the, of the preservation briefs, the National Park Service has, I think there's 50 some uh, preservation briefs on their website. And brief number 17 talks about architectural character and how to identify that and then um, use that as part of your design review or design process. Um, I will point out that standard number five says that things like craftsmanship and distinctive construction techniques should be part of the review. So for example, it could be something that is sort of hidden from public view. Um, I worked on a project in college where 
a house downtown was being demolished and they found out a log cabin was inside of it. Um, there's also a project at one of our historic sites that we own, um, the state owns, where when we were getting into the masonry brick walls, we found that there was this very um, interesting technique that they had used to lay the bricks and tie them together so that there wasn't um, a change in the coursing on the outside. It was just very smooth and uniform. Um, but that was something that we only found because we were doing restoration work and we took a lot of um, pains to replicate and preserve that, that you know, technique of laying the bricks so that someone in the future could also find that craftsmanship. Standard number six is the one that of course we all use um, probably the most and we talk with property owners about. So deteriorated historic features should be repaired rather than replaced. But there are also times where the severity of the deterioration maybe requires replacement. Um, so if you are going to replace a distinctive feature, they should match the old and design color texture. And it says other visual qualities than where possible materials. So, you know, talking about things like windows, it just depends on the window in the building. But sometimes the material is very important if it's on the ground level um, where people are walking up and you can kind of touch it and feel it and see it very close up. But in other times, if the windows are very high off the ground or they're back from the street, it really doesn't matter what the material is so much as making sure the proportions are the same, um, the dimensions, the profiles, so that there's not a stark you know, difference in the old versus the new. And of course, replacing the missing features, things that we know used to be on the building um, that we'd like to restore, that always needs to be substantiated with some kind of evidence. So a historic photo, a historic drawing, some kind of description and maybe a primary source. But we don't want to, as, as we heard earlier, we don't want to add a conjectural feature just because we think old buildings used to have those. Um, I, I've seen that happen a lot of times where somebody's like, well, you know, I'm going to put in a, a pressed metal ceiling because these old buildings had that. Well, not all old buildings had that. So if you don't have evidence for it, if there's not some sort of physical or pictorial or descriptive evidence of that, then we don't recommend putting in that. Um, we recommend with going some, with something a little bit less um, fancy and, and more compatible. I would say to the preservation commissioners um, that, you know, match means match. So don't be afraid to ask for samples or mock-ups or examples of products from other buildings. Um, you know, just because the property owner or the architect says, oh, this will match. Um, if it's a different material, especially, there could be some kind of visual quality like, you know, like plastic or fiberglass has a shininess to it that wood doesn't, or metal may not quite match the, the characteristics. Um, so ask for samples and, and mock-ups if, if needed. Remember that building, that is what it looks like now. Um, because there was physical evidence of what, obviously, you can see where those little gables came to a point at one point. There was also um, photographic evidence of what the building looked like historically. 
Standard number seven talks about using the gentlest means possible. Um, you don't want to do physical or chemical um, treatments such as sandblasting that can cause damage to historic materials. Um, and obviously the surface cleaning of structures is something that um, gets, gets talked about quite often. Um, it says here that if it's appropriate, it should be undertaken using the gentlest means possible. And the preservation office, we always tell people um, it's generally not appropriate to clean a historic building unless one, the, um, the dirt is causing damage. So if it's some kind of biological or environmental, you know, dirt of some kind that's causing damage to the building, then obviously we want to remove that. But um, the other time it would be appropriate would be like with the state house on the top right there when uh, they're doing repairs and they need the replacement stone or the patching materials to stick to the stone um, and also to match the colors. So they have to be clean before they do the repairs. Standard number eight doesn't come up very often, but it's something that as the Preservation Commission, you guys might wanna keep um, kind of in your mind, uh, significant archeological resources affected by a project should be protected and preserved. And if resources must be disturbed, mitigation measures must should be undertaken. And so we don't think about, especially in a in, in a built up city, um, archaeological resources very often. Um, but there are probably archaeological sites in the city of Lawrence that um, are known. Um, they're probably not touted to the public very often because we try to keep those kind of, you know, restricted. Um, but if you guys are seeing a project where there is going to be digging on the site, um, for example, the project you were reviewing tonight, if it was to be undertaken and they need to dig down to um, pour the foundation of that, um, that new lift tower, and they're going to be digging into the dirt right next to the foundation of the building, it's possible that they would find artifacts from that property, um, families that have lived there in the past. And so, you know, just talking to the property owner about that and saying, you know, hey, be aware of this. You might want to keep an eye on it. Um, if you find anything, it's not like they have to, you know, notify um, the state archaeologist or anything, but it might be something that they would want to keep with the property or talk to a local historian about. Um, there are times you do have to call the state archaeologist. That is when you find bones. Um, you should call the sheriff first. That's the rule. <laughs> All right, almost at the end. Standard number nine, um, which was brought up tonight, um, and standard number 10, um, deals with new additions, exterior alterations, or related new construction. They should not destroy historic materials that characterize the property. Um, and then we get to the part that is often a little bit hard to navigate. The new work should be differentiated from the old and be compatible with the massing size scale and architectural features. Um, not just of the property, but also of the environment. Uh, so this is an example of a building in Hutchinson. Um, obviously, you know, late 1800s building um, has two storefronts with a central stair. The, the storefront on the left has suffered an unfortunate remodel probably in the 80s. And that is definitely not a compatible new storefront. Differentiated, yes, not compatible. 
new property owners wanting to do something better um, and wanting to rehab the building, they looked to the storefront and the remains of what was left from the original storefront on the right, um, and then tried to do a new storefront that was more in keeping with what would have been compatible for this building. Um, and so you see that they have an infill keeping the original iron columns. Um, they've put in a transom, display windows, and a bulkhead. That's pretty typical of what a late 19th century storefront would look like. Um, and so they were able to do a compatible but differentiated storefront um, because there are some differences in what would be typical. And also the new storefront is metal. Standard number nine also comes into play when we're dealing with um, not just additions or alterations to historic buildings, but also infill in like a vacancy in a historic district. Um, so in a downtown historic district, you may have a um, vacant spot between, you know, a couple historic buildings. And what is put into that spot also needs to be compatible but differentiated. And so these are just some examples of what you might see on a commercial um, street as infill, and, you know, trying to maintain the setback with the street, trying to maintain a pedestrian feel, feel at the um, sidewalk level with storefronts that are very transparent. And then up above, having some sort of division where you see there's an upper level and a lower level, and then capping it with some kind of cornice or parapet. Standard number 10 deals with additions um, or adjacent or related new construction and making sure that it's undertaken in a manner that makes it reversible or removable in the future. Um, and you want to do those kind of additions and new construction in a way that keeps the essential form and integrity of the historic property and its environment. Um, what I like to call this is sort of the down and back standard. Um, if you're going to do an addition or new construction on a site, you want it to be lower than the historic building. You want it to be towards the back. You want to keep it out of sight as much as possible. And then also, if there's any kind of connection to the historic building, you want it to have as light of a touch as possible, because if in the future that new construction ever needs to be taken away, you don't want there to be such damage to the historic property that it can't be reversed. And I will point out, too, that it is kind of a misconception sometimes among design review commissions and even SHPO staff. Um, just because it's reversible doesn't mean it meets the standards. Vinyl, vinyl siding is reversible, but it does not meet the standards. So just because a proposal is reversible, if it doesn't meet standards number you know, one through eight or one through nine, um, it could still not meet the standards. Couple notes here, just about a, a few other things like rooftop additions. Um, you know, just kind of keeping in the same vein of down and back. Um, if you are going to look at a rooftop addition on a project or even a in a residential district, um, sometimes they want to do additions on the back that sort of pop up above the roof line. Um, it's recommended that you push those back into the sides and into the sides so that they're barely visible from the right of way. 
Um, we never recommend a rooftop addition on a building that's under three stories. This is kind of my typical example um, in Manhattan where the Duck Walls building was a contributor to the downtown historic district. It had been a Joanne fabric for a long time. Um, the initial proposal was a very large rooftop addition um, that just sort of overwhelmed the historic building and even sort of encroached on the historic district around it. Um, it was almost as tall as the Wareham you can see down the, down the block there. Um, ultimately, we got um, some design review done where we could come to a better um, design solution. They were able to pull it down and back. Um, it, it, of course, did impact the use of the building. I think they wanted some additional space up there. I think they were going to use it for like apartments or something. And that just could not be accommodated by the historic building. It was, you know, standard number one issue. Um, but this was the design that they came up with. And as you can see on the rendering, barely visible in this rendering perspective. Ultimately, it's not really visible at all from the street. That's a Google view. Um, obviously, the camera is like up on top of the, the car. Um, but what you can see, um, and this isn't this isn't a deal breaker, but just something to keep in mind, um, you can see all of sort of the um, accessories to the rooftop addition, right? Um, because there's a patio up there for rooftop dining and drinking and things. It's a um, a restaurant and, and tap house, or it was when it was rehabbed. Um, you know, lights, plants, um, any kind of other accessories to the patio up there. This particular building had a very high parapet, so they didn't need railings to meet code, but some other properties may have low parapets. And so to accommodate use on the rooftop, they have to put up railings. And if those are visible from the street, those are gonna impact the look of the building and the surrounding historic district. Um, you know, other things that might come into play are historic storefront designs. Um, you guys were talking about a residential property tonight, you know, porches, windows, um, you know, just looking at compatible and differentiated, how to pick out what fits the character of the historic building and what doesn't. And that all comes down to defining the character defining features. So I mentioned earlier the preservation briefs. There are also other resource documents out there um, on the National Park Service website. Um, we have a lot of those linked on our website, kshs.org. Um, these are the what we call interpreting the standards bulletins. There are a bunch of those. I don't even know how many of those. Um, but they, they tackle all kinds of different topics. Like you can see one here is um, designing compatible replacement storefronts. One is removing interior plaster to expose brick. So if you have a particular upcoming um, design review case that you wonder, well, what does the park service recommend or what would the SHPO recommend? Um, that may be a good place to look for resource information. Um, of course, Lynn always knows how to get a hold of me. Um, if you guys have a question about what, what would the SHPO do, um, we are happy to provide some guidance there as well. And that is my contact information. Um, and I would love if you guys have any questions to try to answer those for y'all. 
Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. Um, Commissioner Chair Meyer had to, um, looks like she's dropped off the meeting. So Commissioner Irby, as Vice Chair, would you like to take over the meeting at this time? Commissioner Irby, sure. Um, does anyone have questions for Katrina? Katrina, thank you very much. That was really informative. Um, I've, I've seen you do a similar presentation, but I always learn something, so thank you. Anyone have questions? Commissioner Holly, I would also just say thank you, Katrina. Um, Lynn, Commissioner Irby, Lynn, uh, do these slides become, are they available to us after this meeting is over? Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator, the meeting is being recorded and will be on the city's YouTube channel, but I imagine that uh, Katrina would also make those available to us if you would like a copy of the slideshow. Commissioner Arby, thank you. Well, thank you again. Um, I believe that's, let's see, going back to the agenda. Um, there are no miscellaneous items on the agenda, so I believe we are ready for adjournment. Yay! Sorry, that is my eight-year-old son who wants me to put him to bed. Um, Lynn, do you have anything else for us? Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. Um, city staff does not have anything else, so you could have a motion to adjourn. Right. Would anyone like to make the motion? I will motion that we adjourn the May meeting of the Historic Resource Commission. Commissioner Klein seconds. Right. Uh, do I have to vote on this, Lynn? Lynn Braddock-Zollner, Historic Resources Administrator. No, you do not have to vote on adjournment. So. Thank you. Uh, all right. See you all in June. Adjourned. Good. <laughs>